Only Three Lads is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast family, home to some of the best music podcasts on the planet. Visit PantheonPodcast.com to discover more. And if you like what we do on O3L, we kindly ask you to please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on right now. It really helps us more than you know. You're about to listen to our special bonus episode featuring our unabridged conversation with the magnificent Clive Gregson from Any Trouble before we got into this week's lists. To hear Clive's list of his top five Stiff singles, be sure to check out our entire label spotlight on Stiff Records. And for more information on Clive and his prolific career, visit clivegregson.com. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy Only Three Lads. Only three lads in conversation with Clive Gregson of Any Trouble. Thank you so much for showing up once again. It's the Only Three Lads podcast where we take a look at the golden age of alternative music from 1974 to 1999. Now, I am Uncle Greg. Of course, we have the professor. Brett Vargo with a little bit of a hoarse voice this week. He's yeah. been sick. I'm I'm the croaky frog on the show this week. Oh wow! So what happened? Where did you get this virus that attacked your vocal cords? You know, I went to an, an industry conference for the for the mortgage business, and um, those mortgage people they are just disgusting, filthy. I'll tell people. you, it was like old times. You know, there's people hugging, shaking hands. I mean, amazingly, two days later, I found myself with this wicked cold that is hung on. So it's not COVID. It's just some other It is not COVID. I have taken my tests. It is not COVID. So it's not that you got wet and cold. You know how like your mom, you're going to get a disease if you're outside cold. There's no way cold air gives you sickness. That's science. That's science. I will trust you on that. All right. Or at least it sounds like science, right? Sure. So this week we have a very cool guest. And what we're talking about this week, it's our top five stiff record releases now if you don't know what stiff records was or now is once again it's one of the most important record labels really for our genre of music that we love so much the era that we're going to be covering here is stiff's initial run from 1976 to 1986 this label was formed by dave robinson and jake riviera released a lot of seminal records during this period by a varied cast of characters including my hero yes mr elvis costello Ian Dury, Reckless Eric, Devo, Nick Lowe, Madness, The Dam, The Pogues, Motorhead, the list goes on. I mean, it's a very eccentric group. Aside from the remarkable catalog of music, their releases were also tied together with a daring spirit, a wicked sense of humor, and a great deal of graphic art by the late, great Barney Bubbles. And one of the most thrilling bands on Stiff's roster was undoubtedly Any Trouble, whose brand of literate, nervy, explosive pop music made them critical darlings in the early 80s. And well, the pleasure, the privilege is ours to welcome the pen, the voice, the rhythm guitar of Any Trouble, Clive Gregson. Clive, welcome to Only Three Lads. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for having me. Okay, real quick though, Brett, I, I got to hear, how did you get Clive on the show? What exactly, what steps did you do? What lies did you tell? What did we I promise asked. him? Really, you just I, asked. I asked and Clive was very uh, gracious to accept. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Wow. It's just yeah. always amazing because you do get a lot of great guests for this podcast. And I'm just like, wow, how did he wrangle that? Like, I don't, you know, maybe you showed your boobs. I'm not really sure, but whatever it took, thank you so much for doing it. And Clive, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you. That's how I usually operate. <laughs> but I, Clive was not having any of it. Listeners, if you are not hip to any trouble, I'm first going to highly recommend starting with their two stiff albums, 1980's Where Are All the Nice Girls and 1981's Wheels in Motion. They've been in constant rotation on my turntable this week, um, along with their other two EMI albums. But especially if you're inclined towards artists like Elvis Costello, Graham Parker, Joe Jackson, very highly recommended. You're the only one I need I never felt the need to cry or rejoice 
So Clive, can we start at the beginning with how any trouble formed and then I guess subsequently the road to uh, landing on Stiff? Sure. Uh, yeah, it was, um, we formed in around 75, something like that, 74, 75. I was at college. Um, I'm originally from Manchester in the north of England. And uh, I went to a little college not far uh, from Crew, Crew and Old Sager College. It was a teacher training college, and I was studying music there. And um, I always I was playing at that point. I was kind of mostly playing folky acoustic guitar stuff, uh, but writing songs, and it just seemed like the thing to do to try and get a band together. So, in classic style, I think this is a fairly well trodden path. I started hanging around the various clubs and venues in the crew area, scoping out musicians. And I spotted there was this one guy who um, had a band. I can never remember what they were called at that point. Uh, and I thought he was kind of pretty bad, but I thought his band were really good. So over a period of about three months, I stole the whole band from him. I got them one at a time. <laughs> That was essentially the embryonic lineup of any trouble. Uh, we originally had a different singer. We had a stand-up singer, a guy who was a little bit older than us, frontman. He was great, uh, but he was, as I say, a little bit older than we were, and married with a couple of kids. So, as as things progressed, and it became obvious we were going to, we were busy and getting busier and likely to turn professional. He stepped back because he, you know, he was not able to keep going. So I moved over. I was playing guitar and I moved over to uh, singing lead vocals, really. Nobody else wanted to do it, so that was me. Uh, and I was writing pretty much all the material. We started out very much as a as a covers band, playing mostly American stuff, things that influenced us from, I would say, the early 70s. Um, we were you know, listening to a lot of Little Feet in the band uh, and then some English stuff, and then... When New Wave came along in England in 76, we were really taken with the stuff that was, was around then. So obviously Elvis, Graham Parker particularly, for me, I remember being very influenced by. Uh, and I realised that I think that to make the change from being a, a kind of a covers bar band, we would have to have original material. So I started taking the writing side of it much more seriously and wrote a whole bunch of songs, some of which stuck with the band, some of which fell by the wayside. And eventually we moved the whole operation back to Manchester because I finished college and got a job as a music teacher, of all things. And um, we started playing a lot around the Manchester area. There seemed to be plenty of gigs. We built up a, a little following, and it seemed to make sense to do what everybody... Again, the approved route was back then was to make your own record so we did a little we borrowed some money from phil our bass player's dad went in the studio completely clueless we had no idea what we were doing at all went in there recorded half a dozen songs picked two put them on a single on uh, our own label really and um, sold them at gigs mostly and then uh, we went along to see john peel you i'm sure you will have heard of as a radio one oh, dj yes big tastemaker back in the day and uh, he had a live show he was doing a, a DJ live show at Manchester University so we thought oh, we'll go along and we'll give him our record he's bound to love it and you know what a great idea that was you know nobody will have thought of that so we, sh we showed up and you know every band in Manchester there must have been a hundred bands there giving him the tapes and records and he had a big plastic bin liner full of all these records and tapes that everybody had given to him. So we threw ours in the, on the top. We thought, well, that's the last we'll hear of that. That's, uh, you know, not such a good idea after all. Uh, but the next week, he played it every night on his show. For a week, he played it literally five times, five days on the run, five evenings on the run, and then started passing it round other Radio 1 DJs. And the next thing we knew, we had a record that was couldn't be playlisted at Radio 1 because it didn't really exist. We'd only made 500 copies. Uh, but we had a, you know, a radio hit. That was Yesterday's Love. That was Yesterday's Love. And nice Girls was the other side. I don't want to be your lover. I just want to hold it for the rest of the night. But you wouldn't could be another. 
so the next thing we knew, I was getting phone calls at work from record labels. <laughs> and um, we had a, a little bit of a bidding, a bidding war, maybe five or six different labels really keen to sign us. Uh, and we went with Stiff because we just liked them. We, you know, we had all the records, we were big fans of the label, we, we knew all the stuff, and we got to meet them. They came up to see us play locally, and it was a no-brainer, really. We just thought, these are the right people for us. And uh, we signed in February of 1980, and, uh, and the rest is a complete mystery. Clive, so what did you do with your fifty quid when you signed with Stiff Records? Well, now they gave us <laughs> now they actually gave us a relatively healthy advance. So of course we did what all bands do. We spent all of it on guitars and amplifiers and uh, you know, utterly pointless things and lived on the breadline for the next two years and you know, that was that really. We thought having guitars and amplifiers would help us to be a better band. Big mistake. So things are better left till the dead of night. One thing you better love. One thing you better love. One thing you better love. Girls are always right. Girls are always right. Girls are always right. Of course, so your signing was with Stiff was a few years after the label's formative years. I mean, where you hear all the legendary stories about Jake Riviera's explosive outbursts and the, the fist fights and the publicity stunts and all that. There was a, kind of an anarchic feel to it. But I, I kind of always got the impression that the cast of Misfits was kind of like a unified gang at that time with Nick Lowe and Elvis and Ian Dury and Reckless Eric, etc., by the time you had signed, had the atmosphere changed? It's hard to say because, of course, we weren't there in those early days. We knew the label as fans. And, uh, you know, we'd been to see the first Stiff tour. We saw Elvis and Nick Lowe and Rockpile play a gig in Liverpool at a really small club just as Elvis's record, first album, came out. So we'd been and we'd seen, I'd seen Ian Dury a few times. So we knew it as fans, really. We didn't know what the label was like. And um, we, we just liked them as people. So I don't really know. I, I, I suspect that particularly the first TIFF tour was probably not a very happy operation for all involved. And in fact, not that long after the tour, Elvis, Nick and Jake all jumped ship and left stiff and went off. Jake formed Riviera Global, signed Elvis to that, and Nick, and they finished up with Warner Brothers, I believe. I think they were they had a deal with Warner Brothers. So I, you know, I wasn't really around at all for those early days. I, I just knew knew it as a fan. Uh, I mean, the stories are legend, but as with most rock and roll stories, I'm sure most of it is myth, and yeah, you know, a bit of it is true. But um, when we got there, they their biggest act was madness by a long way who were selling absolutely shed loads of records and I, th I think that dave felt with us it, it's really interesting in a way because we felt absolutely at home at stiff with the people with the label it was our kind of setup but uh the corollary to that was within about a couple of months for sure we knew we were in the wrong place I knew for absolutely certain we were with the wrong label because I think what Dave was trying to do was find a band somewhat to replace Elvis and that kind of style of music. What he thought, what he saw in us was a band that he was hoping could break Stiff in the States. Because we were a lot more, if you think about Stiff's bands back then, they were nearly all very image driven. They all, I mean, they all, you know, Elvis, Nick, 
big fan, Jury particularly, they made incredible records, but they all had really strong visual images, very quirky madness, again, you know, this really so strong. And when it came through any trouble, we had literally nothing but the music. We had no image, no grasp of style or image. We weren't quirky, we weren't funny. We were just, we looked kind of nerdy, really. I mean, we looked kind of geeky. But what we had was this, you know, collection of songs that Dave felt could work in the state. And <laughs> almost the first thing he did after we got to the label, as we subsequently found out, was he lost his distribution deal with CBS in the States. And instead of, you know, the, the I mean, I love Dave to death, but he, he did some incredibly crazy things. You know, so he had this band that they felt would really open up America for them. And instead of, you know, going to somebody else, Arista or God knows who, Warners, to get a distribution deal and really work the thing effectively, they, they set up their own label in America. And um, it was an absolute disaster from square one. They set up this thing called Stiff America. And literally threw thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars down the toilet, wasting the time trying to get a label going in the States, which was never going to happen in a billion years. And so we, <laughs> it's quite funny, we, you know, much as we felt at home there, there was this growing sense, and certainly by the time we got to the end of our first year there, which was 1980, we signed in February of 1980, we played the Stiff Tour, the third Stiff Tour, which actually went to the States. We played maybe 20-odd shows on the East Coast at the back end of the tour. It was all over. We knew we, we knew the thing was, was a disaster. We, we knew we were in completely the wrong place, and it kind of just all went really badly wrong which is wow. I'm sure not what you want to hear but that's actually what happened to us and uh, I have no regrets about Stiff at all I thought they were great people they were music fans uh, but I think you know we were, the, we were the wrong band for them at that time and they were the wrong label for us at that time but you, you would never have known we, we only knew that in retrospect It almost sounds like they were trying to paint you into a corner that you grew out of pretty quickly. I mean, even on the first album, the American version of the album, uh, we were treated to a couple of bonus tracks. We had covers of Bruce Springsteen's Growing Up and ABBA's Name of the Game on there. Not your typical new wave type fare. I, I guess you weren't your typical new wave stiffed band by that point. I don't think we ever were. Uh, it's quite strange, you know, I just think that what they, I think what they thought they could uh, do with us was very post New Wave. This is 1980. I mean, the first flush of New Wave had gone by then, you know. So they'd had, Elvis had been successful in the States, but they'd had to jump ship and go. And he, I think he was signed to CBS in the States, if I remember rightly. He was, yes. Um, Ian Dury, they tried hard. Americans were never going to buy Ian Dury records. They tried hard with Lena Lovitch. They were never going to buy those. They tried hard with Madness. America eventually, with Madness, maybe a couple of years later, had a couple of chart, you know, big chart hits in the states. Our house, yeah. our house is the number one record there. Yeah. But that was way down the line, and that was not through Stiff. That was through whoever they came. I think they were out through Virgin in America, if I remember rightly. Uh, Geffen, I think. Oh yeah. All right. Well, there we go. It was just one of those things. It was just really interesting. Is that? Um, I never, ever, now I look back on it and I think we were never, ever a, a typical stiff band at all. And I don't think we ever could have been really because we just, that, that visual thing was completely beyond us. We had no, you know, we actually had no clue about image or we turn up for photo sessions and you could see that, you know, the photographers would kind of just look at the floor and think, oh God, what do we do with this lot, you know? So you call 
scared Stab my heart with a poison pen Patronize me now and again I expect no favors and I get no gratitude You catch me It's just funny, really. Uh, we were so naive. We were just very, very naive because we'd not been part of any scene, really. We'd come out of a small town in Cheshire where we formed. We'd moved to Manchester. We'd kind of created our own little scene, really, but we weren't part of the whatever, you know, the new order, whatever was going on at that point. We were so alien to that, the Manchester, you know, we never ever really fitted into the Manchester thing. We weren't from London, so we, we'd had no experience of the pub rock thing or how record labels. We, we knew nothing. And, um, you know, we were just having a good time. We, we, we thought, you know, we signed with this record label. They're a cool label. They're nice people. They really like us. They work their asses off. I have to say, you know, to the credit, they, everybody liked us and really went to bat for us. But we knew fairly quickly we were in the wrong place <laughs> because we just were not a typical stiff band it's, and, uh, it, and it, it, that never changed so what finally led to your departure from the label i think they'd spent enough money and realized on the second album we actually did three albums for stiff the, there is a, a, a promo oh the live started album. out as a promo live record which is probably Right, you know that's a good that's a really good indication of what we were like as a live band. We were just everything was rocket fast and miles out of tune, but really good fun and loads of energy. She's got these angel eyes. By the time we got through the second album, the second album came out and we toured the States on that. I think people forget the first album was actually a really big airplay record in the States. The one thing they did get right was they managed to get enough copies pressed to go out to the radio stations. So at the point we arrived in New York on the Stiff Tour in December of 1980, we had the most added record in the US that, that week and for the next two or three weeks. It was a big radio record, but nobody could buy it. You couldn't go in a shop and buy it. It was really hard to find. So, so I think by the time we got through the second album, which were, and we went on the road with that, which was kind of the middle of 81, I think even Stiff had woken up to the fact that we were all wasting our time, really. And they'd spent... They put a lot of effort into it and spent a lot of money for no return, really. We couldn't make these records stick anywhere, really. I often look back on it and think it's really funny how small things make a big difference. But, you know, it was one of the things, in retrospect now, I think a, a mistake that we made was to, was to go on the Stiff Tour, funnily enough, because right at a point where we were making some headway live. I think if we toughed it out and just carried on playing live, we could have toured ourselves into existence because we were a good live band and people liked it. And we could have kind of made some headway that in that direction rather than hoping for chart singles, which were not going to happen. At the point where it's kind of September of 1980, where we were really starting to make some headway, as the live band, we then went away and did three and a half months on a package tour with a bunch of other bands who everybody has completely forgotten about, really, including us. And it was, you know, it was a waste of everybody's time. Um, but if we'd said no, we'd have lost all the goodwill we had at 
stiff. So it's one of those things where, and it was actually good fun. Don't get me wrong. We went out and it was a, it was a good laugh. And there's, there is a documentary movie from that tour that I think might be on YouTube. It's it's very funny. I mean, we had, we enjoyed ourselves. We had a good time. But as a career move, it was it killed us stone dead because we lost our audience. You know, in trying to get this other thing, we lost our core audience. And by the time we got back to that in the spring of '81, the buzz had gone. You know, the the whole sense of excitement had gone out of the thing, and that was it really. And stiff, you know, as I said, I have no regrets about it about stiff at all. I thought they were great, and it's a great experience. And I often say to people, you know. Now, being able to say that you were in a band signed to Stiff in the early days of Stiff is like being in a Merseybeat band. It's the coolest thing ever. But I still look back on it and think, we knew fairly quickly we were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that's just how it goes. Clive, you know, you talk about the Son of Stiff tour in 1980. Uh, You knew kind of in your inner feelings, okay, we're in the wrong place. Uh, It was a money pit. Um, and it didn't really help any of the bands, but was there any good collaborations? What's probably some of your most happy memories of that tour? Oh, well, it was just good fun being with a bunch of lunatics, basically. We had a good time on the road. We were all on a coach. You know, who was on it? We had uh, Joking Carrasco, who was a Tex-Mex band from Austin. They were all crazy. Uh, there was Dirty Looks, who were a New York power trio, who were really good, good band, really good players, nice people. Uh, the the Equators, who were a really, really good reggae band from Birmingham, nice guys. And Temple Tudor, who were a bunch of absolute crazies, you know, Loons, really yeah. nice guys. And in fact, you know, and again, another thing that this is classic, any trouble really, is that. Um, I think we knew in our hearts, when we were making the first album, I think we'd realised that Mel, who was our drummer, was not really up to it. And it was actually not that bothered about being in a band at all, but wasn't a terribly good drummer. And we had to, you know, I think for most bands, the first time you go in a proper recording studio and you kind of hear what's really going on, it's usually a terrible shock because... It may not be the case these days because everybody's a lot more savvy now, but bear in mind this is 1978, 1979, and we were very naive. So we we thought we were great because we'd play pub gigs around Manchester and everybody liked it, so we thought we were the, the business. Then you get in the studio for the first time and you hear it's all miles out of tune and all miles out of time and all over the place. And you start to think, oh, maybe we're not so good after all. And we carried Mel because he was our mate and he'd been with us from the beginning. We carried him for a year all the way through the stiff tour, but we knew at the end of that we were going to have to change our drummer. So the antenna was up. So we tried to steal Temple Tudor's drummer. It was a guy called Gary Long, who was brilliant and a great guy and a really great drummer. And uh, so we, towards the end of the two, we'd get him to sit in with us every night. And it was one of those things where, you know, people sat in on everybody else's sets, and then there would be a big hoot nanny at the end where we'd all murder some somebody else's some big. Try to think what we did. We did Gary Glitter's rock and roll. We made butchered that Ooh. every night. And um, <laughs> but so we tried to steal Temple Tudor's drummer, which got back to stiff, and they were very unhappy about that, and, and rightly so. You know, it was a terrible thing to do. You know, but we just thought he was great. And we thought, oh, he'll. And he, of course, said, no, I'm not doing that. And, of course, they then had a hit record. And I think they had two hit records. So, you know, he wasn't going to leave a band with a couple of hits to come and join a bunch of no-hopers from Manchester. That was never going to happen. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think, I think, you know, I think Stiff realised then that, we, you know, we were, compl- A, mostly useless and be completely shameless so i think uh, i think they'd had enough of us uh, we never fell out but they just spent enough money on trying to make something happen that was never going to happen really but the two was it was you know notwithstanding we should never have done it, it was the wrong thing to do we took full advantage of a great deal of alcohol and uh, you know just went wild like everybody else
let's talk about going full circle. So when you reformed Any Trouble for the wonderful Life in Reverse album, you returned to the reformed Stiff label, <laughs> you reunited with producer John Wood. What did that mean to you symbolically? Oh, it was brilliant. We were going to make the record anyway. We knew uh, we'd kind of been talking about it for a little while. We'd always stayed friends. We'd stayed in touch. We kind of and I'd gone off and done lots of different things. It's not hard to bend. Phil, our original bass player, couldn't do the reunion record. Phil has a, a real career. He um, he runs a company. At that point, he, he was basically making every you know Grammy-nominated pop video known to man. He worked oh, wow. in partnership with a guy called Nigel Dick, who was a director. Nigel, is the, who, who originally worked for Stiff, still one of my oldest friends. Nigel is the most successful pop video director of all time. He's done more MTV awards and imaginable and Phil was his producer and they had this business so that's what they were doing then so Phil couldn't take three weeks off work to make a record and be in a band that had no prospects whatsoever uh, much as we would have liked him to so we got uh, Mark Griffiths who was a friend of mine who I'd been working with in a different context who was a great bass player uh, and at that point he was the bass player for The Shadows actually, it was his regular gig then. So we got Griffin and Martin, the second Any Trouble drummer, who was brilliant. Chris, the original guitar player, came back. So we had three quarters of the original band. I, I still, to this day, work an awful lot of production projects with John Wood. I've worked with John pretty much all the way through since 1980. He's got, you know, we just very old friends we're on the same page musically and studio wise and artistically so it made sense to get you know and he wanted to come back we would never it was another moment of uh, you know a big part of the big learning curve i would never have moved away i thought that the first any trouble record that john did had a real style to it and it's just you know very basic live and he he worked very hard you know bearing in mind we were carrying a passenger on the drum stool he worked very hard to make it work, and it's a, it's a good sounding record, I think. Not, it, it, you know, notwithstanding that we weren't terribly good, really. When the first album was not a success, you then have these awkward meetings with the record company, and of course they, they're not they're not going to blame themselves because they they have to carry on. They're not going to blame the band because they have to work with the band. They have to carry on. So the the person that gets the job is generally the producer. They they're the ones that get fired. And, and I thought that was very unfair because John had done a great job, and the problem was not in the production of the record. So we got Mike Howlett for the second album. And Mike, I liked Mike a lot. Uh, and Mike showed me the value of a lot of pre-production and rehearsal. I don't think the record sounds very good. It's quite muddy and it's not terribly hi-fi. Uh, but I think some of the songs are great. I really thought, they are. thought we had some great songs, but the record sounds pretty strange. So it was never a problem for me to go back to John. I just felt like it's what we should have done all the way through, really. And in fact, we did work with John again on the last, uh, the last EMI record, uh, Wrong End of the Race. John did that with us. So um, I've kind of worked with him all the way through. So it was it was like getting the old team back together, and it was it was absolutely fine. And we'd finished the record. We'd actually made the record, and we're in the process of mastering it. And Andy, our manager, said. You know, I've just had this very odd folk called Stiff uh, back in business. They, uh, it was bought up by uh, Trevor Horn, who ran ZTT back in the 80s. He's bought the label. He wants to revitalise it. And somehow they got on the wire that we were back in the studio and wondered if, you know, wondered if we'd like them to put the record out. So, and we thought we'd pitch it when it was done. But 
probably that we'd finish up doing it as an indie anyway. Um, so we went and talked to them and they made us a sensible offer. Um, so I said, yeah, sure, you know, why not? So it was quite strange. Now, of course, and the same problems existed, you know, Stiff, we were still not the right band for Stiff and Stiff. That second generation of Stiff didn't last very long at all because, you know, I think they realised fairly quickly they were spending, that Trevor was spending a lot of his money and getting nothing back for it. So, But they came out of the gate really strong with a couple of, uh, of hit albums by The Enemy. Yes, which again, they, they bought in. Those records were made and then licensed to Stiff. Um, yeah, they did. Um, but I think they then did something. It was a bit of a vanity project for Trevor and Lowell Crane. They had a thing called The Producers, right. which they spent a lot of money on, and which kind of did the nosedive fairly quickly. So I think this, I might be wrong on this, but I feel feeling it was about this time that Trevor's wife, that Jill was very ill and um, she had some kind of strange accident that left her incapacitated. I don't know the whole story, but I think he started to feel that he was spread way thin and wanted to pull the horns back in. So Stiff, effectively, Stiff still exists and is still owned by ZTT, but it's a catalogue. It's a reissued catalogue labelled now. I bet they maybe did half a dozen new records back in whatever that when did when did present um not present tense life in reverse came out 2007 it was like 2006 2007 yeah, that yeah. they seemed to be the most active again yeah and they probably made half a dozen new albums at that point and then went back to being a catalog label which is fair enough so yeah, they have a rich catalog. Oh, yeah. um, going back to John Wood, because I've always kind of been curious about that alliance. I, I know he produced Squeeze, but I knew him as a name. I'm kind of a, a Nick Drake fanboy. So, okay. you know, I recognized him from a lot of like the Island 70s folk rock records, uh-huh. Fairport Convention, John Martin, etc. Right. Did the label pair you with him or was that a choice on your end? Again, we knew nothing. And um so when it came time to prep the uh, the first album, they said, to, you know, who would you like to produce? And we we never had a producer. All we'd done, you know, these little things in our little local studio, and we'd kind of done it ourselves. So um, I said, I don't know, you know, give us some names. So we they gave us maybe nine or ten names, and we had meetings with all of them. I, met, I know we met with Steve Lillywhite, who was doing XTC at the time, uh, there were some quite well-known people. None of them I can remember now, really, so long ago. Uh, and then John came in, and they they thought of John because of the squeeze stuff, of course, because that was very current. Right. And they thought, yeah, yeah, that's that sounds like it could fit. I knew John because I was, again, like you, I was a big folk rock fan, so I was a huge Nick Drake fan, big fan of Richard Thompson and Fairport and the McGarrigals. I knew John's catalogue back to front and the minute he walked in the room i thought yeah he's the guy for us because he you know he was on our wavelength he's not at all showbiz he's not at all fashion orientated his record he makes records that are actual bona fide of the moment recordings of the band of bands playing in rooms you know and uh, and that's what i've come to love down the years those are the records that i relate to um so it was fairly obvious. And so Stiff Stiff thought they were getting Squeeze's producer. We thought we were getting Nick Drake's producer. And, <laughs> uh, and, and, and both is true, you know, that's... What a lot of people may not realize is that aside from any trouble, you have had quite the extensive and prolific solo career and collaborations, uh, including the duo Gregson and Collister. it amazing that in 2020 alone you released a staggering eight albums which i guess effectively answers the question what did you do during lockdown <laughs> well <laughs> what's the one album that you would point people to in your career that 
best captures the essence of Clive? I don't think there is one record because they're so it's so eclectic, really. Um, I suppose if it was to be simplistic, there's a there's a very good cherry red any trouble compilation of the stiff stuff, which is is you know it really is the primo stuff. That's very good. Uh, there's a best of Gregson and Collister, which is about the best of that. There's a best of Clive, which is about the best of that up until 10 years ago. I suppose I'll have to do a volume two at some point. So, I, I, you know, they're fairly obvious answers, but there's just on so many different things that there's not, you know, I, I suppose anybody that came to, to my career, career, I never use the word career, actually. I always think of, <laughs> always think of doing this is, uh, is what I do instead of having a career, to avoid having a career, really. But I suppose if somebody who came to me via Gregson and Collister would be quite surprised to hear any trouble because it's nothing like it. It's a very different thing. Uh, yeah. And maybe somebody who came to some of the more folky acoustic stuff would be surprised by you know the more rock and roll stuff. But I've always done a little bit of everything. I've also have this a little guitar trio that with again with Mark Griffiths and Andy Roberts, who's uh, been around forever called the three boxes and that's all instrumental just guitar instrumental stuff and that's really different again so i don't think there's any one i think my favorite any trouble record is probably wrong end of the race i think my favorite Gregson and collister record would probably be the last word which was the last one but my favorite solo record i don't know i mean they're all they are what they are. It's um, some of them, and the the big splurge through 2020. I originally I had actually set out. I decided I was going to retire from the road at the end of 2020 because I've been touring. At that point, I've been on the road for 40 years, solid. And uh, I just thought, I just don't want to be on motorways on a Friday afternoon anymore. I'm fed up with that. Yeah. So I kind of announced in the January of 2020, I announced the big scheme was to do as, as much touring as I could through the year and then get off the road. And then I thought in a fit of complete and utter madness, I thought I'll, I'll release a new CD. I announced that I was going to do a new CD every month throughout 2020. So I'd prepped it pretty well. I mean, I had everything written and kind of organized. Uh, and so I set off on that. It was a mammoth endeavour, really. And I was, was, like everybody else, I was actually on track and then was caught out by COVID. And the one thing that um, several of the projects, uh, most of it I could just do. I have a little studio on the top floor of my house in England. So I just did most of it on my own up there because I had to. I had no choice. But there were four projects particularly that I knew I needed to do in outside studios with out with other players, with other musicians. And that was not possible at all through lockdown. That, you know, that just couldn't be done. So I'm just kind of, oddly enough, I've just finished number nine. I got wrapped a few weeks ago. That's in, that's in production. Uh, and then the other three, I'm doing number 10 next month. I'm going up to a studio in Edinburgh to do that one. Number 11 is a rockabilly record that we're doing in a mono cool. studio with... Uh, they have nothing in there that was built after 1960. They record everything straight to mono. It's great. Cool. But they've been closed throughout. They're just about opening up again. I thought they might have gone to the wall, actually, but uh, they're still there. So I'll do that at some point as soon as I can. And then the final one is... Um, is a record, is a collection of my guitar heroes, really. So I've just been doing, make I make I make the tracks and then I send them out. I've just sent them out to lots of different guitar players that I like and ask them to play on it. And uh, most of them sort of said yes, <laughs> mad, mad fools. <laughs> so uh, um, that's nearly done. I'm just waiting for a couple of things to come back on that. I just send them off and they do the stuff at home and send it back to me. So, Clive, you're saying that you're kind of lazy, is what you're saying. 
No, no, not really. Uh, <laughs> it's a type A spearhead. Yeah. That's who you are. Wow. No, bored, I think, is the word. <laughs> Spent a lot of time. I actually quite like lockdown. I know it's. I know it's very uncool to say so, but I thought, you know, because I'm fairly antisocial anyway, and um, I just thought, oh, it's all right. I'll just spend all my time up on the top floor in the studio, and I just wrote and recorded. The uh, there was no distractions. Nobody came round. That was good, and. Um, I didn't have to go anywhere, that was good. And it was quiet, and there were no planes bashing back. You could see the stars at night. I actually, you know, the air was a lot clearer. It was, it was quite nice for a while. We're now back to normal. It's back to, <laughs> you know, back to... Well, it's an impressive collection, and they're all. I like how they're all neatly compartmentalized with different themes and everything, different sounds, so well done. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it was an interesting... Interesting process, but uh, yeah, I think it worked out well. And um, you know, considering it's just just me bashing away on the top floor, this I think it's sound pretty decent. I'm quite happy with the way they worked out. So that's been good. Greg, I don't know about you. I only have one more question before we get into lists. I know that Stiff was known for its hilarious and sometimes very outrageous taglines. Which Stiff tagline best suited any trouble? Good question. I, you know, again, I don't know really. Some of them were so funny. I like it. Very <laughs> dead wheel record, and that was an early one. I like that. Yeah. I liked, uh, I liked uh, mono enhanced stereo. I always thought it was very funny. I think that was on a, yes. on a, a bit low single. And then, of course, there were all the t shirts, which were all very rude. If it ain't stiff, it ain't worth a. <clears throat> exactly, yes. You know, the only trouble one they did for our release party. Said so what did that say? It said uh, trouble at home and some in the street, <laughs> which I thought was was a bit desperate. I've still got one of those somewhere. No, I like my favourite is probably mono enhanced stereo. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a, a work of genius. They were funny people. They were funny people. As, as I said about Stiff, is that uh, I have absolutely no regrets at all about my time on the label and the people I met there. And I still, some of my oldest friends, my manager was, it was Andy Murray, who worked for Stiff forever. He was their press officer for years. Um, I'm still very heavily connected to a lot of the people that were there at the time. They're just great people. But I, if I had my time again and a bit more knowledge and a bit more, I probably would have been bloody-minded and still signed to Stiff. But it was not the right thing really for any trouble at that point because we were not a typical stiff band and they musically in some ways I suppose we, we fitted in a bit but otherwise but that's all there was with any trouble we, there was no nothing else history being what it was you had some fantastic work with stiff and beyond what an incredible honor it is to have you here and to share your stories about the label and your career well i've enjoyed it thank you very much indeed for having me a lot of fun good luck with everything thank you yeah thank you clive really and if you just get to work and put out some new music that would be great you know what i, I know mean? really we're going holiday tomorrow actually we're going away for a week we're going to france so you know that, that would be nice it'd be a nice break i'm ready for that well enjoy your holiday and then come back and give us uh, parts nine through twelve <laughs> oh, they're, yeah. they're in the pipeline i'm afraid to say all right. Well, again, thanks to our special guest, Clive Gregson. Please make sure to check out his very rich and deep catalog with and without any trouble. And you will have no trouble. Again, that <laughs> fell flat. All right. That must mean it's time to go. So on that note, we will say hello and wave goodbye. The theme music is Frequency, written and performed by yours truly, Brett Vargo. Any other music in this episode is presented solely for purposes of review, examination, and news reporting. If you like what you hear, go to your record store and pick up the LP, CD, cassette, or 8-track, or stream it if you're one of those newfangled fancy pants. If we're lucky enough to still have these artists with us, go out and see some live music. For the latest updates, join the O3L community at facebook.com slash only3lads. We want to hear from you. And while you're at it, click on the Shop Now link for the coolest threads. Until next time, thanks for listening.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.